You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Arden Lee. Arden Lee is the creator and facilitator of the Repatterning Project, which she describes as a course in understanding the human operating system and repatterning trauma imprints and social conditioning in order to achieve creative freedom. And she is currently enrolling for an eight-week Repatterning Project course, which starts on July 19th, 2020. She also has a band called Arden and the Wolves, which you can find wherever you get your music. And uh, this is a pretty pretty cool conversation. They get pretty deep into things. Arden's joining us over Zoom uh, from her home in Los Angeles. And yeah, this is kind of a long one, but it's worth it. So let's go. We are speaking with uh, Arden Lee of the Repatterning Project and many other cool things that we're going to be mentioning a little bit later. So uh, Arden, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And Satch, always good to see you, buddy. Always good to see you. Yes. And uh, so Arden, you know, um, our our media gal, Tina, um, uh, came across you or somehow knows you and she just thought you'd be a, a cool person for us to have a conversation with because that's what we do on the show is we just have awesome conversations with people that have kind of a cool angle. So this will be fun to, to, to see where we go. Who knows where we're going to end up? Yeah. You know, uh, she shared, uh, at first she, she read a post of yours. I was having dinner with her. Uh, it was a recent post that you did about um, the coaching industry. And I really liked what you had to say. I resonated with quite a lot of it. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It was, it was uh, well said and um, good, a good critique of some of the problems that come up with people's, um, you know, coaching processes and, and attitudes and philosophies. And I thought it was um, uh, just well-organized, you know, with what you said. Um, and I concurred about a lot of it, so much so that I copied and pasted that into a, an NLP and hypnosis learning group uh, that I moderate. Um, nice. That's my background. Um, and, Me too. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. That's awesome. Um, so anyway, um, uh, then she thought um, we should interview you, and I think that was a great idea. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. It's It's been... It's been a pretty wild journey over the past year, I would say, because I'm a relative newcomer to the structures of the coaching industry. I've worked sort of in and around the coaching industry for a while because I was a dating coach back before my my sort of <laughs> current version of myself, but I never really committed to the business. So when I created the repatterning project and I realized like I, I used to joke, I was like, like I created this thing that's like the Tesseract, like it worked <laughs> far more like I was just happy that first time I, I had my my little beta launch that I just did for like 497 or whatever you know I was just happy no one asked for their money back you know but then like six months later um people start like the testimonials started coming in because it, it's an eight-week course but it takes you know it takes a little while for people to integrate and implement the information so about six months after the course I start getting these testimonials coming in saying hey I took Arden's repatterning project last summer 
it's six months later. My life is in a totally different place. Like, I can't believe like, like for the first, like one woman, you know, one of the first women to, to come forward with, with a testimonial like this basically said, um, I'm pretty sure that I've permanently shed the suicidal ideation I was dealing with on and off since I was seven years old. Mm. And since I decided that I want to live, I might as well be happy. I decided, you know, to rework my historically tumultuous relationship with my husband. And on top of that, I've decided to, you know, commit to myself as an artist. So I signed up for four times as many art shows this year as the year before. And I've already just this past weekend in one weekend, I've made as much money selling my art in one weekend as I do in two months of my day job. And wow. like six months later, and I just couldn't be happier. And I was like, holy shit, well, like, what did, <laughs> what did I do? So I started joking, like I started referring it to, as the, to it as the Tesseract, like this incredibly powerful thing that I created that I better know how to handle. So that's when I started signing up for business coaching. I was like, all right, I've, now I've got the, like, I finally feel like I have the thing that I can commit to this, this eight week, like step-by-step actionable process for, um, you know, creating, I don't want to say like creating new beliefs and habits, because that's something that, you know, gets overused in the coaching industry so much, but just essentially calling all like, you know, Marie condoing all of your patterns and your <laughs> habits, you know, like, like it brings everything up and you get to look at everything and basically be like, this is working for me. And this is really not working for me, even though I thought it was supposed to, you know, and we get to like, just rewire everything with like no shame, like lots of self-compassion, lots of like, yes, this takes time. Yes, this takes space. And, and, and all of, you know, all of that, all of that sort of support there and all that, that understanding of how difficult the real deep work really can be. And, um, and, and yeah, so, so then I went into the business coaching kind of thing with like, and you can imagine me like this doe-eyed, like, like, hi guys, <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, you know, and, and I was someone who I created this course because I came out of, um, I came out of healing and, and reworking a lot of repressed trauma, trauma that I had survived through throughout my life that I'd just been like, I'm fine. It's whatever, it's whatever. And was naturally like getting stored in my body. So I, um, so when I finally brought it all up and dealt with it and I decided to do it in this really super intense kind of like, well, wow, shit, I guess I better, <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, it's like that Winston Churchill saying, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> like right. I just decided I was like, I was like, I don't want to be stuck in the muck that, you know, for any longer than I have to. So I was like, let's just get this done. Like, give it to me straight. I'm willing to destroy my entire life. I'm willing to, to cut out anything that is not working for me and completely, you know, just walk forward into the darkness, not even being able to see the hand in front of my face in order to have belief and faith that something on the other side is going to be better and that I'm going to be able to create something new. Sounds like and an initiation. What's that? Sounds like an initiation. Oh, absolutely. It was a huge spiritual initiation. Yeah. Big time. And so, so yeah. So on the other side of that, I was like, I guess I better learn how to run a business. Cause like I said, I'd been sort of in and around the coaching world. I'd worked as a dating coach for Adam Lyons. I wrote a book about my dating coach. I was more of a writer blogger than I ever really was a coach because I was good at writing and I knew how to do it, but I didn't really know how to run a business and get clients. And I had trauma around having clients that I didn't even really know was trauma until I, you know, started bringing everything up. So yeah. So there I am in the business coaching world being like, hi guys, like, you know, oh, I'm here. I'm ready. Like, I'm like front row seat, got my VIP ticket. I'm like ready to learn. 
And I really walked into it like in good faith. I was really like, you know, okay, I'm going to start being around people who like really know how to make money. I'm going to let go of all my old stories. I'm going to play full out, you know, and I walk into this environment. And what I see is people who don't even know how to hold a container together, amping up the energy in the room, getting people high on emotional conversion, having people up to the mic, sharing these big things, and then, you know, cueing the music to have like, you know, Alicia Keys, this girl is on fire, you know, and everyone's, yeah, you're going to throw your credit card down. You're done with your old life. And, you know, and it gets to the point where the energy is so high and so tense and so weird. And this dude yells at the audience and he breaks an easel on stage, throws a flower vase across the room and decides to stomp through the audience yelling at us about how, you know, I'm a man with purpose. I'm fucking done playing small. I'm going to throw down my credit card. Here it is right now. And every woman in the room, I mean, many of the men as well, but definitely like every woman in the room turns white as a ghost because there we were, we had committed, we had signed up. We were like, all right, I'm here. I'm going to play full out. I'm going to do the thing. And then, They took us to this space of emotional vulnerability by amping up the energy in the room so hard. And you understand like mirror neurons, you know, like you understand like our neural networks are connected like Wi-Fi. So we're all feeling this tension. And all of a sudden it was just this, these people do not, there's a hundred people in this room and these people do not know how to take care of people. So this, this guy has this outburst. Everything gets really super awkward. There's like a woman who's been fainting at the mic all weekend who starts to go on and on about how there's some big portal opening and we're all in this spiritual bondage and we have this one opportunity to jump through this. Like no one knows what she's talking about. And the leaders in charge were so out of their element that they know something's wrong, but they don't know what to do. So they put on a Beyonce video and break for lunch. And there's you know, there's a friend of mine who, who, you know, who's, who's there, who's, who's like a, you know, who's, who's a, a trauma, like a somatic trauma facilitator guy. And he's like, yeah, I had to Sherpa seven people through their trauma responses on that lunch break, you know? And so I left and I wrote this thing in, in the group and I was just like, listen, you know, and it was, a, and it was an event called um, Congruent Coach, you know, and so, which I, ironically, right. <laughs> and basically I was like, listen, my being congruent means I'm the creator of the repatterning project. And I grew up in a household with a man who could not control his anger. And I decided that for me, what being congruent means is I am no longer going to run that pattern. So I cannot stay at this event anymore. I paid a thousand dollars to be here. I paid a thousand dollars for the, the privilege of front row exposure to secondary violence and you want me to hand down $65,000 and you can't even, you can't even keep a weekend long container together. And this is the kind of, and you want me to give more money than I frankly ever had in my life to you to, to help me create a business when you clearly don't even know what the hell you're doing. Absolutely not. So yeah. So that's my feeling about the coaching industry is I walked into it. It was almost like that sort of like beginner's eyesight where it was like, I got to sort of see the naked emperor because I was outside the community and I didn't, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid, <laughs> you know, I was just like, all right, there's obviously some useful things here, but there's a lot that's really wrong with it. So yeah, that was my experience with the coaching industry. Wow. For sure. Yeah. That's quite a story. And, and you know, what I was remarking on internally as you were sharing it is how 
familiar that sounded because um, I've been in the personal growth industry for a while, uh, quite a while, and most of it in the that's out in the open and is is kind of like larger than life. Most of that stuff is very similar uh, to what you described. I, I went to one um, where, you know, like you, there was a person up there kind of sharing all sorts of strange stuff. I mean, they were talking about things. I don't even want to get into it. It was just so complicated and convoluted, to be honest, um, having to do with believing that they were cursed and poisoned and various lifetimes and dimensions affecting them. And they went on and on for about two and a half hours. I walked out of the room because the coach decided to show off and do some kind of gestalt, you know, therapy with him, uh, with her. And I just thought this is just ego here. There's no, there's no point to this. We're wasting our time. You took, three days to convey something that could have been shown to me in 45 minutes. I joke not like for, for sure. There's no reason to be doing this. And all, all it is is to draw people into tens of thousands of dollars of coaching programs. And I thought, I don't want to be like you at all. I have no interest in being like you. That's not my style. And so, you know, I'm kind of realizing that there are a lot of personal growth uh, gurus. I guess you could say self-proclaimed gurus who who do approach it that way. And they're not people who I trust. They're not people who I feel uh, comfortable around uh, sharing my, my personal stuff. I feel like I'm being um, corralled into a box of some kind rather than understood as an individual. And that's not the way I do my coaching. It sounds like that's not the way you do your coaching. And there are quite a lot of people like us who are out there and um, don't treat people like that and are thinking about it very differently. They're really off we're put off by the uh, rah-rah sessions, which I like to call them, uh, because they just don't feel sincere. They don't feel real. Um, I have absolutely nothing against presenting to a large group of people and um, conveying something important or powerful and even making money off of that, making a lot of money off of it if, if, if it can be done. Um, but... I wasn't ever really looking to be a Tony Robbins or to be to be any of these you know larger than life kind of coaches. I want to convey something of value and meaning to people um, that lasts and that that has the ability to be critiqued and has the ability to be tested. It has the ability to to check up on people over the course of time to see, hey, have these changes. Um, continue to change? You know, like, are, are you, are you, have you gone back? Have you gone forward? Have you expanded? You know, what kind of lateral chunking has happened in this? Um, that's important to me. You know, the, the real results, not just the results I might get up on a stage or in front of an audience, you know, the perfect demo subjects and all that kind of nonsense. You know, I, I'm more interested and curious about the complicated and the difficult because um, they're the ones that stand out. And that's the, the the bumps in the road that we run into as coaches is that sooner or later you run into people who are not like the demo subjects that you learned on, you know, and, and you have to get out there in order to improve yourself. You've got to be able to improv. If you can't improvise, you're screwed. You know? Yeah. Unless you get yeah. really good at protecting your ego and, and, you know, creating situations where you make excuses for yourself, you know, in a sort of narcissistic way. Um, and right. Just put on a Beyonce better. video and leave. <laughs> yeah. Cue the Beyonce video. You know. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I think that most of us can sense something inside that's a little wrong when we're trying to be sold to. You know what I mean? There's 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 this feeling of I'm being sold to, 
and and I always know what's there. I can always tell when somebody's trying to sell to me, even if I decide to go along with it, you know, but it doesn't feel good. But once in a while you come across um, somebody or some organization um, where there's some honesty that they're selling to you, but the feeling behind it is a little bit more, um, you know, to use your word, congruent with with what both sides want, you know. And so it reminds me one time, uh, Carlos, you were you were talking about affect mismatches, mm. and and it was that idea that you know it's really important when you're going to connect with another person or with a, a a huge audience of people, for that matter, is to take a moment and realize what is the mood in the room. And you can't just go in there and, and we're going to take them down, take no prisoners. Da, da, you know, and you go in with that, that super enthusiasm and, and then it mismatches where everybody else is at. And then it, you're, you're instantly out of rapport. You know what I mean? Um, annoying as fuck. Yeah, it's yeah. very annoying. So I can tell by the references you've made um, that you are a sci-fi geek like us. Yes, I would say so. I'm probably probably not as much, maybe perhaps, but I have. I certainly like. For, for example, I still have only seen the original Star Wars. I haven't seen any of the newer ones. But, well, Marvel uh, Marvel but, is included in sci-fi, and you made references. Oh, to all right. Yeah, I have. I definitely have some feelings about. Um, well, some complicated feelings about Marvel versus DC. I would say I'm currently more of a DC girl. Okay. So I heard mm. Tesseract uh, references and um, Matrix, uh, yes. references, <laughs> Matrix references. And we'll see what else comes out. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. yeah, we'll see. We'll be, we'll be on the lookout. Yeah, yeah. So they'll um, listen out too. Yeah, yeah. Hey. No, uh, I, I said I mentioned um, I mentioned DC because um, one of my uh, one of my mentors writes uh, for DC right now. He's working on the the three book Wonder Woman series, and I helped to consult on the the second book a little bit. Uh, so that was yeah. an exciting project. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. yeah, that's way neat. So, you know, Arden, you, we've talked a little bit of, uh, kind of in general, like uh, the, the outskirts of your repatterning project. Let's take a minute and get into it a little bit more. I think, you know, anybody listening might be a little more, a little bit curious as what exactly is it? What is she doing? Uh, what are the mechanics of this thing? Cool. Yeah, man. You know, I've been teaching it for, I guess, two years now, twice a year. And I'm, you know, currently enrolling for July 19th is, uh, is the start of, uh, of the fifth round. It's an eight week course with, uh, with eight lectures and eight group calls and a Facebook private group container for like 24 seven support. I jokingly call it the gifted kid program to enlightenment is that basically I, I break down, um, a lot of material, um, and I put it in a certain actionable order whereby people start to understand how we take on programming in our brains, um, how our trauma imprints form, how our beliefs form, essentially viewing any of your coping mechanisms with self-forgiveness and self-compassion and understanding what they really were are not faults of your own, but bad solutions to underlying problems that you didn't have the right tools to address at the time and how these patterns form and how we get invested in them, how we get invested in these faulty algorithms. Like, you know, like if X, then Y, right? Like mine was, if I am valuable to people, right? If I create value for people, then they will treat me well. 
And that's just not true. It's just, it's a faulty algorithm. You could be a priceless painting hanging on the wall of the Louvre. And there's always going to be that asshole who's going to come along and graffiti you just because, you know, because it's, because it's there. So examining all of these beliefs and seeing like where the holes in them are and then replacing them with new ones. What kind of investment is involved in doing your eight wig program? Yeah, it's a $2,000 investment, um, okay. but there are, there are ways of getting around that. <laughs> there are, um, there's also the early bird price, uh, which is 1500. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I gave away three activist scholarships, uh, this round. So it was a uh, thousand and you could also, if you were an activist, you could have someone else sponsor you if you want, you, you know, um, I put that out there as, as well. It's essentially the same thing, but you know, if I write it up and I say you can sponsor someone then someone can go and they can find that and it can really look, you know, um, they, they can help, you know, make that argument more convincingly for why should they should, you know, be able to have that sponsor. And, uh, and I did a thing this year, actually, um, when the pandemic hit, I opened up a pay what you can container. It was everyone has to make a donation of some kind as a sign of their energy exchange, as a sign of their consent. And I had people who paid $1 and I had people who paid up to $444 and like basically everything in between, you know, you pay anything that you, that you want to be in it and you can be part of the group and get that group support. And so as I was closing that container and we closed, you know, just last week, um, I gave, um, I gave a discount too to those to those folks who had signed up for that program. Um, I said basically, like, listen, if you want to join the repatterning project and you want to do like the full deep dive, then you can do it for a you know a thousand total on a payment plan of like a hundred a month for ten months. Because I knew that the people who had signed up for the pay what you can coaching were the people who were really gonna who who wanted and needed that. You know, so that was my little my my inner chaotic good trickster energy. Yeah. yeah. Saying like, all right, I see you, I see you showing up and only being able to pay, you know, like like fifty dollars a month for this, and that's fine. You know, it's always whatever you can pay. No one's gonna be turned away for lack of funds. All right, if you can step it up to a hundred a month, if you can make that work for you, then you know, you can join this this program. So so yeah, I, I like to make it accessible while while still valuing it as a two thousand dollar investment. That's beautiful, and I will just point out that you made a D and D gaming reference there. So um, yeah, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons reference. Yeah, yeah, the, the chaotic good, and then there's also a mythology oh. reference in there with uh, mm. the fixture. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm proving yeah. my point here that that you definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a good, good, good point, Carlos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> closet sci-fi, closet sci-fi. You know, Arden, I, I, I really appreciate what you did there with, you know, with your, your, uh, that financial arrangement, because, um, somewhere along the lines, um, somebody said something to me that transformed my own relationship with money. And the person said, you know, money's just a form of energy. I thought, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And what's important about the exchange of funds is not really the funds. It's the exchange of energy. And since money is a form of energy, that's a perfectly acceptable thing to, to transmit between, between two people. But what you did there is you required a transfer of energy and they paid you some of that energy in dollars and they paid you some of that energy in focus and investment and in commitment and things like that. And that counts too, you know? And, and then the other thing that happens is it also explains why things sometimes don't work out when we give things away for free, because there does need to be an exchange of energy. And if the other side doesn't, so if I receive something for nothing, I feel like, yeah, but I'm supposed to exchange some energy. 
And then I feel like I can't sustain that. So then I'm going to start to walk away from this free thing. I might, I might enjoy it for a little while, but at some point after a while, it doesn't feel balanced anymore. And both parties can't sustain that, or at least can't sustain it for, for, for the long term. Um, but then you have the opposite. You know, 65K on your credit card is, that's a big exchange of energy. And you have to feel like you're receiving an equal amount of energy back in your life. You know, so I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was kind of, kind of nice, kind of neat that, that you, you sort of just, that happened organically. Thank you. It actually kind of comes a little bit from my background in witchcraft, you know? Um, and I, I know, I think in our messages back and forth, we're talking a little bit about the intersection of NLP and, and magic. And for me, that energy exchange is a sign of consent. You know, when I started realizing how powerful magic is, you know, and we can, we can, we can even replace magic with intention setting or, or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure your, your listeners don't necessarily mind. Yeah. 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 Oh God, manifest. Don't get me started on that, on how that word has been, has been tarnished. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but what it is, is like, if someone is coming into my container, it's a recognition that they're there of their own free will. And so by, you know, I had someone who was like, oh, I can't make a donation, but you said you, you know, you wouldn't turn away anyone for a lack of funds. And I was like, I won't. Um, but can you give a dollar or can you find someone else who can give a dollar for you? Because it is a sign that you are using your free will to be here. You know, when I learned, um, when I started learning magic from the, you know, the, the witchcraft tradition that I started studying when I came out to LA, which was, you know, British traditional witchcraft, there was this idea that, you know, um, um, essentially doing a spell for someone else um, is, is like bind work. You know, it's like messing with their free will. Even if your intentions are good, you don't know what the results of that is, is going to be, or if they agreed to them. So if someone wants you to do a spell for them, the tradition is like, you know, they spit on a coin and give it to you. You know, it's like a, a just like a quarter or something and your spit represents your free will and they give that to you. So obviously I can't have someone spit on a coin if we're, you know, going on a zoom meeting or whatever, but that, that idea of that, even if it's $1, says like, okay, that is a sign of your consent that you want to be here out of your own free will and you and that you understand that a transformation is going to happen, you know, because I don't ever want to, um, that's another problem I have with those high pressure, high ticket sales tactics is it's like, who like it's like who would ever like hard sell someone on ayahuasca you know like that's that's evil that amount of of enlightenment that amount of change and growth and transformation that will happen is something that people have to sign up for out of their own free will and only their own free will alone so that for me is is the tradition of where that that came out of you know i i want to give people the the empowerment to say even if it is just a dollar no i'm here and this is the dollar that I'm paying for this for this entry. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, you heard it here, folks. Only one dollar for Arden's course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have closed that one now. <laughs> that, that was the one where I was like, "Well, I didn't have anything on the schedule anyway. Yeah. I was in between courses. There's a course I do in fall and spring called Myths and Magic, and we were just wrapping up that one." And it would be summer before we started repatterning project again. So it was like, all right, in, in the interim, you know, we're all staying home. You know, this is time that I would have maybe done like, you know, other work out in the world. And I was like, well, we're all stuck at home. Let's, you know, let's, let's actually, let's make something out of this, you know? And it gave me an opportunity to work with people who had maybe been in my free group for a while, you know, where 
it's a support group, but there's not really any, you know, necessarily coaching from me other than interacting and moderating on the posts and everything. And it gave those people an opportunity to work in a structured container with me that maybe they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. So, and it was, it was great. It was a really rewarding experience. Mm. Very nice. Beautiful. Yeah, very nice. Um, so Arden, what, um, what, what, what else is on the horizon for you? You said you're, you're, uh, writing a book or considering writing a book. Have you, is that something you've started or is that something you're just planning or, or what else might be coming from you in the future? Yeah, I'm excited about the book. I basically want to put the curriculum into a book format. So, um, so I'm feeling, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty, pretty steady on what all that entails now. And it's, you know, it's an eight week course. So the book will be in, you know, eight, sections, I suppose. And, um, yeah, I, I feel excited. I feel like, like, um, I feel like I'm going to be able to write one of those sections per week as I'm teaching, you know, so I'll be immersed in that material and I'll be, you know, doing those, those lectures. And then I'll be able to write out about that lecture because I'll be in that. It's again, that's me harnessing the flow state, right? <laughs> like I give the lecture, I'm excited about the material. And then I can immediately channel that into, um, into a written document is, uh, is the plan. But I'm also really excited. I'm um, I'm finally after a, a slightly over a year long hiatus. I'm going back into the studio um, to work on more music. My my band project is called Arden and the Wolves. Um, it's really just me. It's it's more of you know it's a name, but it's a it's a solo project because I hire all my musicians and um, and I hire all my producers. Uh, so so I'm I'm the the creatrix. Um, but there are a lot of other uh, uh, factors that go into that because I don't. Um, I'm not an instrumentalist, I'm a singer. So, um, so I rely on other people to work with me to put the music together. I always write my melodies and lyrics. Um, and I'm excited about that. That feels like, um, for me, that's, that's, you know, singing and, and songwriting, um, and bringing, um, bringing that, bringing that through into the collective, bringing music through specifically because music is so personal and can be so potential. You know, you can, you can have more self-help and self-improvement from a four minute song that's written in the right way than you can from like a two hour lecture sometimes, you know? Mm, So I'm really excited about that. (laughs) Mm, Very nice. Yeah. Art's powerful. Very, very powerful. What would you say some of your primary inspirations have been uh, with the creation of your music? Oh, that's a great, um, that's a great call. Um, I would say, I used to say we were like, if Pat Benatar got signed by Fueled by Ramen, which is the label that signed a uh, Paramore, Panic at the Disco, um, I think Fallout Boy, you know, so, so if you take that like 80s, um, Pat Benatar, Bonnie Tyler, um, even Cindy Lauper to an extent that, that 80s, belter, um, you know, female rock vocal sound and you update it, you know, with, um, with that sort of like emo twist. Um, but then you update it maybe even a little bit further and you add some sort of dark wave synths to it to bring it into a more contemporary feel, but still having that, that eighties rock sound and structure. That's about, that's about what, what we're like. So it's been interesting for me because part of my own magical practice is narrative magic. You know, my mentor is uh, Grant Morrison, you know, who's working on the Wonder Woman comic. And, um, and I consulted for him on that comic basically um, for free in exchange for his magical mentorship. So uh, I count myself um, very lucky. And he, uh, he is the, the sort of modern day father of narrative magic. He coined the term hyper sigil. And what that is, is it's essentially using storytelling to, um, 
um, to manipulate reality, like sympathetic magic, where you create this microcosm of the world. And he did it through comics and I do it through songwriting and you write something and it changes the fabric of reality. So Bardic. one thing, sorry. <laughs> Bardic magic. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's precisely it. Yeah. So one of the things that I actually really had to examine was, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the, one of the things that actually was at the root of much of my repatterning was that prior to prior to my repatterning, I was writing a lot of tortured songs. I was writing a lot of tortured love songs, tortured rock songs about you know rough sex and whiskey, <laughs> you know, like like that whole lifestyle. And um, and so I changed. One you know, I ch What's that? Sleep with one eye open. You've listened, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was interesting. That, yeah. thank, thank you. I'm very, mm -hmm. I'm very flattered. By the way, um, that was that was a, a, a narrative working of me purging my trauma. You know, mm -hmm. um, and the end of that EP had to to change and had to to end in me taking self responsibility. Like that was a purge of all the. Uh, that's interesting. You want you want to talk narrative magic? You know that 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 album, Who Can You Trust? I had the whole thing written. It wasn't released until February, 2018, but I had the whole thing written and all the vocals recorded and the, the album art already shot and done um, by summer 2017. Mm -hmm. And to have all of that done and then to have the Me Too movement happen just like, uh, like in October, 2017, it was like, I looked at that and I was like, literally the album is called Who Can You Trust? And there's a man's hands around my neck, you know? And it's this question of like, is he choking me because we're having sex or is he choking me because it's violence or is it something in between and how do we tell, you know? Mm. And so the fact that it was like, I wrote that, I'm not crediting myself in narrative magic for the Me Too movement. You know, I think if anything, I added energy to that wave, but, but just the result of that was really surreal. So, so I had to ask myself, you know, going forward, I was like, what, what does my songwriting look like? If, if, if every, if I assume that everything that I write comes true, which, which it tends to, what does it look like for me to write something that's going to be still interesting to listen to, but is not going to condemn me to a life of, of, of pain and suffering? So, so that's been my big inquiry. And so I'm writing now this, I'm writing a full length album that's essentially about um, spiritual growth via the the twin flame initiation. You know this idea of the mirror polarity of attracting someone who mirrors your exact issues to you and working through that so that you can reach reach that that point of sacred union. So it's a big leap of faith on my part because I'm essentially saying like, okay, I'm hyper sigilizing for my my sacred partner. You know, my sacred union partner, and starting the writing and recording of this album not really fully knowing where it would take me, but having that leap of faith to be like, I trust that this is going to be a transformative process. And by the time I put it out, that I'll have the result there. So, so that's been, mm, that's been a wild journey in and of itself. <laughs> wow. You're, you're songwriting a future. Yeah. 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 Songwriting and, a future. And I would argue that like nice. any, any of us, like who are artists, any of us who are putting that kind of work out into the world, I think, you know, we are creating our future, whether we realize it or not. You know, that, that was what my, my mentor Grant taught, essentially. He, cre he wrote a comic called The Invisibles, and he noticed that everything he was having happen to his main character 
would happen to himself on like maybe like a three to six month delay, <laughs> you know? So, so he was like, yeah. So I, after getting out of, you know, the hospital with busted lungs and pneumonia, which is exactly the ordeal I'd put my character through. I thought, well, why don't I give him an easy thing? <laughs> <You know? laughs> why don't I just get him laid, give him a hot girlfriend. And he was like, and it worked, you know, all of a sudden all these girls are showing up in my life who look exactly like the woman in the comics, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think we create our reality far more than we, than we understand that we're, that we're responsible for. And yeah. that's what I aim to teach in, in the repatterning project, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. And then my course myths and magic that I run in fall and spring is the sort of right brained approach to that, which is about using the power of narrative and archetype to create a reality as well. I love it. Um, mm. This is why I love tarot study so much working with the tarot and understanding um, the tarot in the way that I do. It's, it's a very magical process. There's lots of psychological elements to it, but I mean, it's, it's really a spiritual path that I don't, I don't personally believe that ends. It's not like, Oh, I know tarot and that's it. Like I'm a master of tarot. It's more like, well, I've been studying it for many, many years and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And I might be able to share some insights that I have gained along the way, but it's a continuing journey, just like, you know, moving you know through the tarot trumps from the fool all the way through uh, the whole wheel um, of all the cards. I mean, e- each of those things, they are narratives, they're stories, they're pictures that, that contain ideas. And we move through them archetypally through our lives and we experience the world through those filters and it changes our reality just, just by looking for those things. It's the observational uh, creation element that I love. And what you're talking about just kind of aligns with that same idea so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You know, I, I, once upon a time, <laughs> I found myself having to go to the DMV. And it was an emergency. I had to go to the DMV that day. I took a day off because like my license was, gonna, was going to expire. And thing. Long story short, I kid you not, I spent 12 or 13 hours at the DMV that day. Oh my God. <laughs> the line was out of the building, out into the parking lot. And the only thing I had with me was some paper and a pen. And I, I, once I got checked in, I literally had to sit up against a wall all day long and just wait to get called to this particular window. Then once I went to that window, I went and sat back down against the wall and waited another five hours to get called to another window. And it was just, that's how the day was. You called me. I would have brought you lunch. I know I should have. So, um, I spent the entire day, the entire day drawing a picture. And this picture that I drew was, um, me creating what I wanted in my, at least my near future you know, or, or, you know, not too distant future. And, um, reflecting back on that, I think that was one of the most transformative days in my life because I had nothing else to do all day long. There wasn't anything else to read. There wasn't anything else. I, I was stuck with just me and paper and pen and created powerful images and really fueled those images with, with, you know, connecting with the emotion that I wanted and uh, looking back, um, I think a lot of wonderful transformations came from that picture. Mm. You know what I mean? And so to me, that was, that, was, that was sort of my version of magic and creating a future. You know, it was, uh, gave me an excuse to fantasize about what I wanted all day, you know? <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I just love the fact that it's like, talk about harnessing the flow state where you're basically like, 
I'm in this container, so to speak. It's kind of a miserable container, you know, to be in, but here are the tools that I have at my disposal. You know, I have paper and pen and from these very simple tools, I'm going to use this space and time that I've been given to create something bigger. I mean, holy shit, that's incredibly powerful magic. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And you know, and, and I, I learned a lot that day looking around, some people were really happy and made the best of the day. And some people were just miserable and furious and complained and had to go up to the window again. And you know what I mean? I just realized, wow, everybody's sharing their misery or everybody's just sharing their contentment. You know, so what am I going to create right now? It's Victor Frankel all over again, you know? Hey, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good, good Victor Frankel stuff. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Good reference. Yeah. 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 I, I talk about a little bit of the, the Victor Frankl stuff um, in, in week three of the course too. And we do? talk about mm-hmm. yeah, we nice. talk about refeeding syndrome. That was my okay. big takeaway from Victor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Is and I someone bought me the the audio book as as a gift. Nice. And it I'm not I'm not gonna lie, I only got about halfway through it because it was starting to really bum me out. And mm-hmm. and I understand like I understand oh, like the privilege of getting to be bummed out by an audio book about the Holocaust, but, yeah. but mm. yeah, like I, I, I get that. Um, but the, the thing I really took from it was this idea that the, the most powerful takeaway that I had was that some people who were rescued from the camps that they'd been in, they survived the camps and they survived up until their rescue. And then something happened called refeeding syndrome where they ate and drank too quickly and it put them into liver shock and they passed away from the fact that they didn't, um, you know, that they didn't go slowly enough in getting their body to a place where it could accept that form of nourishment again. And that for me was a huge metaphor for trauma, you know, and people who try to make those quantum leaps, quote unquote, which by the way, the quantum leap is still on my website. I put it there two years ago before it came to mean like, you know, be Icarus flying too close to the sun, <laughs> you know? So I have, to, um, I have to change that now that it's come to mean something else. But people who want to make those big changes don't understand necessarily that even things that we're supposed to want in limitless quantities, such as financial abundance or, or love or money or happiness or, or whatever, um, can be a shock to our systems if our systems are not ready for it. You know, what is more nourishing for us than food when we're starving? But if we overdo it and we take too much in, then it's going to put our systems into shock and ultimately, you know, harm or perhaps even kill us. So that was my big takeaway from from Viktor Frankl was a big critique of the coaching industry. marketing is, you know, I'm very left-brained, you know, as I, you know, I grew up on the East coast, I was not, you know, I was not into the woo at at all. You know, I, I came, I came at it from that NLP angle, um, which was very masculinized. I was in a a sort of, you know, I was in the pickup artist industry, you know, I was in NLP as something that, that you could use as a, as a tool, as a tactic. Um, but not as something that was going to change you from the inside, you know, until that happened to me. And what I, essentially discovered is I was like, look, I don't, I don't want the woo woo people who, who, you know, Oh, because I looked at the clock and it said 11, 11, that means that he's my twin flame or, you know, like I want people who want evidence, you know, I want people who are critical thinkers. I want people who are open-minded skeptics, people who are like, I am willing to take a leap of faith and see if this works, 
but don't ask me to believe anything, you know, until I see, or, or ask me to believe that thing, but then allow me to, to be, um, um, to be realistic in my assessment of whether changing that belief has actually worked for me. Right. That's really more accurate about it. Like, like believe that it will work, but make sure that it actually does like look, look yeah. at your results. Yeah. Nice. Nicely said. Yeah. Nice. Nicely said. Um, she said one of our buzzwords. Seth. She did. I know I, we, we both noticed it. You, you said, uh, open-minded skeptics. Or skepticism. Ah, yes, that's, that's one of my buzzwords too. That, that has we've been promoting that phrase on our show like from before we ever had a show. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we love great. that. What amazing yeah. synchronicity! <laughs> yeah. It's a great way to approach life. You know, they to be like open to everything. Like. Skeptical of yeah, it's great. That's great. You know, I thought maybe the three of us could talk about this too. Um, and I'm interested in your in your perspective, Arden. Um, let's wax spiritual, let's wax poetic, let's wax inspirationally here. And let's just, um, you know, not leave our critical thinking caps off, but let's just incorporate, you know, loosen them a little bit for the sake of seeing. Let's let's open up because you mentioned something that is a deep, deep search in my heart and in my soul and my mind. Um, you mentioned the idea of twin flame and, um, I realized that in recent years, people have become, uh, maybe they've, they've started in, in popular culture. I say popular, it's still a subgroup of people who have to even think about this kind of thing. But within that subgroup, there's a popular idea that, uh, a twin flame means X and a soulmate means Y. And it used to be that that wasn't really very well defined. It was kind of like they were the, the same thing. And so I think it's arbitrary that people make the separation, but let's just talk about what our impressions are of those things. And even if it's something real or is it metaphorical, is it something, you know what I mean? I, I want to talk about that for a sec. Okay. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say about that and I'm going to try and, Good. I'm going to try and, and um, the twin flame path, when it showed up for me, um, it took me almost a year from the time I heard the term to accept that it was real and that it was something that was happening for me. Because again, coming from that background of, of skepticism and there and with there being so much in, misinformation out there about twin flames and what it means and with it being so entangled with codependence, because it, it essentially is an initiation that leads you out of codependence. But because of that, it gets stuck in that mud sometimes and there's a lot of misinterpretation of it. So it took me from the time it happened to about the time that I, that I hacked it, that I figured it out, that I understood what it was. It was about four years. Hmm. So that was a long time. <laughs> um, so it's a comp and it, it ends up being actually a very simple concept, but getting to that place um, was, and swimming through all of the misinformation and all the, the codependence riddled anecdotes on the internet was um, was, was quite a process. And I had to learn about it through my own experience. So what the twin flame path essentially is, as I've understood it, is it is a mathematical equation and it is based in ontological mathematics that I'm, I'm currently, currently learning about ontological mathematics through my friend Morg's book right now. Uh, my friend Morg has a book titled ontological mathematics. And as I'm reading it, I'm realizing that all of this has shown up for me in the twin flame initiation um, and now I'm seeing it translated. And 
essentially what it is, is, is it's the law of polarity. So let's imagine you have a circle, right? And let's imagine that it is a color wheel, right? So we'll imagine like a rainbow circle, essentially, right? And that this represents the spectrum of everything that is in existence. Well, your twin flame is your mirror image. So everything that is going on within yourself is going on in your, in your twin flame. You're basically the two points on that circle, on that color wheel of infinite possibility that are exactly 180 degrees apart. So we'll take, for example, like the big polarity in relationships. And there's more, than, there's more polarities than these, but the big one is attachment styles, right? On the one hand, you have anxious attachment, someone who wants to be closer. And on the other hand, you have avoidant attachment, someone who is afraid of being close and wants to pull away. And so wherever you are at that point in time, if you call in a person who is your twin flame, it is a mathematical equation that reflects exactly where you are at on your own spectrum of polarities. And so if I am, let's say, let's imagine an algebraic number line, right? And let's say that on the one hand, we have it going from one to 10. And on the other hand, we have it going, or I'm sorry, going from zero to 10, right? Because zero is the center, zero is the, the zero point, right? The non-point, the nothing. And then we have, on the other hand, it goes from zero to negative 10, right? And let's imagine on this number line that, um, you know, that, that the positive side will say is, is avoidant attachment and the negative side is anxious attachment, right? So if I'm a seven, a negative 7.5, the person I attract from that place is going to be a positive 7.5, right? Because everything is going to mirror me and everything is going to line up in that same way. We also have polarities of, of trauma responses, right? We have desensitization on the one hand, right? The inability to feel our body's signals warning us. And on the other hand, we have hyperarousal our body signals going off all the time, right? And we will attract people who mirror these polarities within us. And the point of that is that when we call in that person and when we see that, where people get really stuck on it is that they believe that like, you know, they, they, the trap is that they fall into codependence and they fall into believing that it's really about the other person and that it's about, you know, um, getting into that relationship with that person. But if they're coming at it from that same point on that polarity, it's never going to work. Those two opposites are going to repel each other, right? Because you know what happens when you have an attached a relationship between an anxiously attached and an avoidantly attached person. It can be very passionate. There can be a lot of chemistry, but it's not sustainable. The two elements will not actually work together because it's being fueled by by this this resistance, right? By this <laughs> by these codependent polarities. So the goal is to see everything that your twin flame reflects into you and to move closer on that number line to the zero point of secure attachment. And here's where people get messed up. People really believe like, oh, you just have this one twin flame. And so therefore your chance of experiencing sacred union, right? The zero point, both of you coming together to that zero point in the center, they believe that that is dependent on the cooperation of the person who shows up as their twin. And what I proved, and I'll explain how I proved this too, what I proved is that regard, you cannot control another person's free will, right? I mean, we know this, right? So, so you cannot hack unconditional love if you believe that your sacred union is dependent on coming through the person who is mirroring you at that point in that polarity. And your job 
as a twin flame who is aiming to achieve that point of sacred union. And again, this is what I'm writing my album about. So I've been in this, right? This I've been, I've been, I've been working this through this myself. Your responsibility to yourself is to get yourself toward that secure attachment point by seeing the polarities that they mirror within you and fixing that within yourself and moving toward that point of secure attachment. And if they move with you, that's great. And oftentimes because you trigger each other and because you cause that mirror, that mirrored growth and that seeing that recognition within each other, that will often happen. But at the end of the day, you can't control a person's free will, right? So what you have to do is keep moving yourself toward that point of secure attachment. And when you reach that zero point, then you're going to attract that person who is also at that zero point as well. And that's when you have that sacred union. So people who, who talk about twin flames versus soulmates, we can have a lot of soulmates, right? We can have a lot of people who really connect with us and support our growth, who we feel that feeling of, of familiarity, of family with. And yet the twin flame, people are like, oh, you can only have one twin flame because it is that mirrored polarity. They are your mirror. They are your, your opposite. And not everyone is going to show you that mirrored growth and that, that, those, that equation of that polarity, right? But the trouble is that they forgot to solve for the element of time. Because as we understand from people like Joe Dispenza and from people who are teaching this work, we can do our own mindset work and our own growth work to change where we're at and move from that point of that, like that negative 7.5 on the polarity scale. We can change that through our habits and our beliefs and we can move toward that point of, of, of zero, that, that zero point of secure attachment. And whether that other person does that or not is not something we can control. So that was the big question for me. I was like, if, if the twin flame path is about hacking unconditional love, and yet my sacred union is dependent on the cooperation of my twin flame, who is here in a human incarnate form, how can I have unconditional love if my happiness is dependent on them? So that's what I solved, is that it's essentially they forgot to solve for the fourth element of time and understanding that as we move toward that zero point, then the twin that we are going to attract via that mathematical equation might show up in a different flesh suit, <laughs> right? So so I know that was a lot, but that's, that's no, that, essentially, yeah, that took me four years. That was to brilliant. Out. Yeah, that was I love that. <laughs> That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and we're expecting it to be all spiritual. And it turns out it was the, the, it was math, Carlos, the whole time. Oh, it was math. Yeah. Well, neither yeah, one of you or I are math. math. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Math is, is, so, is so beautiful. The harmony of yeah. math, right? There's a distance between that star and, okay, you know, it's, yeah, time, yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's okay. <laughs> but I'd love to tell you the story, if, if you're open to it, of, oh, of how I discovered this. Yes. Yeah. All right, so I'm working through my album, right? I finished Who Can You Trust, which was my narrative working of trauma healing, right? So I purged all my trauma. I purged all my issues with men, right? I got that all out of my system. And then I said, okay, what do I want next? Well, I want my sacred union. You know, I want my, my relationship. So considering that all of my songs had, had come true, right? The Me Too movement happened and everything, all of that purged in me, right? I was like, all right, well, I better take self-responsibility for what I write. So the next song I wrote is a song called Eclipse Life. And it's basically about, um, it, it is about meeting, you know, your twin flame, meeting your sacred partner. And it was based on events that had happened to me in my real life with a man who I met on the night of an eclipse. And I met him at this party in Los Angeles that was called Cloak and Dagger. And, uh, and so it's like this party that happens in LA on Tuesday nights. And it's this like kind of goth party. It was, you know, it was super cool. It's kind of, it's kind of imploded since then, but 
was the night of an eclipse and I was at cloak and dagger and I meet this guy and it's instant chemistry and we go home with each other the same night, you know? And then my awakening happening happens, you know, the mirror shows me where I have my growth to do and holy shit, I'm just on this big thing. So eclipses, as you may know from, you know, from magic are times of intense transformation. So I decided to use this as a metaphor in the song, right? That the sun and the moon at the point in which the, the masculine and feminine polarities meet in the sky creates this time of intense transformation, this gateway that you can enter through. So the song is called Eclipse Life. And I wanted to make sure I was like, I don't want to write this song about this dude because I don't want to bind anyone's free will. If he decides he is not my sacred partner, then that's that's up to him. So I was like, well, I'll write this song and I'll keep it vague enough that like he's the placeholder, right? You know, like he's the person that maybe inspired this in me, but I'm not going to use any specific characteristics about him. I'm just going to write this song in, in this big archetype so that someone else can easily step into the story so that I'm not binding his free will. The one thing I did put in it, aside from the eclipse, was there was a lyric that kind of came to me with the word cloak in it, which was the name of the party. There was a lyric like, like stars, we were cloaked in darkness. And I was like, oh, that's cute. Cloak. All right. We met at cloak. Okay. I'll throw, I'll throw that in there, you know, just, just to be cheeky. It's a little reference, but it's still not, it's still not binding the dude. You know, it's just a detail that happened to happen. Well, I write that song and then some time goes by. And I'm clearly moving myself toward the zero point of secure attachment. I'm doing that work. And, and this guy, you know, he's doing work on himself too, but it reaches a point of resistance. You know, it reaches a point where I was like, I can't deal with this person being avoided with me anymore. This is no longer in alignment with me and how I want to be treated. So I wrote a song, like letting him go, you know, I wrote a song like releasing him. And it was just like, maybe we'll meet up sometime in the future, whatever it is. It is what it is. Four days later, I met a man who would become my next partner after writing that song, releasing this other guy, right? And I start seeing things on my Facebook feed start to come up about the twin flame path. And people are talking about how like, you know, your twin flame is not limited to one person. It's this, it's that. And it's like, and at this point, you know, I, this is before I had sort of understood the formula. Right. And I was just like, no, no universe. I know what you're trying to say. And no, this doesn't make any, this doesn't make any sense. How can your twin flame just be anyone like what that, but that, no, I thought you're supposed to have many soulmates and only one twin. And this, no, this doesn't make any sense. Like my twin is my twin. And this person who's, who's showing up for me is like a soulmate meant to like raise my vibration in the meantime. Surely that must be what it is. Right. Because, because besides I met my twin on the night of an eclipse at Cloak and Dagger, right? I met him on the night of an eclipse. That's like the most twin flame thing ever. And then I realized, and this person, um, this person that I ended up dating for a while, this new person who had come into my life was long distance. He lived in Italy. And he had booked his flight. He was going to come over and we made a music video together as sort of like, we, we, we made an excuse of an art project so that we could meet and, and have a reason for meeting. And we ended up dating for, for the rest of that year. And I realized, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, eclipse season is, is coming up again. Let me check his flight. So I go and I check the date of his flight. And his flight lands at 11.59 p.m. on the night of the eclipse. Hmm. And it was a Tuesday, which is the night of Cloak and Dagger. So his flight lands, and I pick him up at the airport. And we've been corresponding for about two months at this point. And there's obviously it's, you know, 
there's obviously a lot of like tension in, in a good way. You know, I was nervous about meeting him naturally. And I said to him, I was like, are you, I was like, you've been traveling for almost 24 hours straight. Are you exhausted? Do you want to go straight to the Airbnb? Are you hungry? Do you want to get something to eat? And he goes, fuck it. Let's go for a drink. And we're both wearing black because Cloak and Dagger has an all black dress code. Just, you know, and I, I'm fairly goth, so I wear a lot of black anyway, but he didn't, he wouldn't have known that, you know? So he's like, let's go for a drink. And I took him to Cloak and Dagger. So sure enough, it was the night of an eclipse. We're at Cloak and Dagger. And then we went home with each other that same night. Everything happened exactly in the same way as the first thing did that I wrote about. And everything that I kept from that interaction that I wrote about in the song and said, well, this dude is just going to be the placeholder, but I'm going to write about this phenomenon. It happened again, exactly as it was. And I didn't even choose the, the date that this guy, you know, flew in, right? <laughs> you know, like he booked his own ticket. You know, this was something I had no, no say over, over whatsoever, but the fact that it could happen exactly as it had before. <laughs> so magic is real. <laughs> yeah, a lot of synchronicities. I can understand why yeah. that's such a profound um, impact on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It Absolutely. basically showed me that, you know, I don't have to, yeah, I don't have to rely on a specific person and I'm single right now, but I don't feel weird about that because I know that I'm moving toward that zero point and that I'm closer than I, than I have ever been before. So now I'm just kind of like, okay, great. Like I'm, I'm uh, great. Send me the next one. I'm currently exploring uh, a mindset around this, which is open-mindedly skeptical about the whole idea. I I have, for as long as I can remember, and I can remember all the way back, um, pretty much to pre-verbal days, um, because of trauma, probably. Um, Being a person centered in the heart and being a highly sensitive, empathic, type of person who has since learned to develop compassion out of that empathy, um, but who is a deeply romantic soul, someone who has um, held an irrational but meaningful belief in loving and who practices loving. Um, I wanted to believe, probably still want to believe at some level, um, that there is such a thing. Um, because it's a beautiful idea. It's an inspiring idea. It's a, it's an idea that moves me. Um, but I recognize that there are so many presuppositions in the idea itself, unverified things and leaps of logic that are required, uh, knowledge we don't really have that are based on ideas, theories, summations of what we think creation really was, but we really don't know. Well, well, I'm curious about that. Unpack that more for me. Yeah. So, because um, <laughs> I, I listen to you and I, I want to be yeah. like, but wait, love is an irrational belief in love, but love is the most rational thing. <laughs> love is the most sustainable energy, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but, so but go on. I'm, I'm curious about yeah, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so from a feeling standpoint, that's very true. Uh, from a from a rational thinking mindset, um, I can only look at the benefits of it or the um, the problems with it. Either way, you know, I can look at it scientifically. I can look at it uh, socially. I can look at it psychologically. I can look at it in terms of relationships and how it affects relationships. But at the end of the day, there's so much we don't know. So so 
it isn't really rational in the sense that it's understandable fully. It's not something you can um, put into an exact equation without um, summing it all up in a way that's so generalized that it becomes a nominalization. You know, as we know from NLP, uh, words like love are nominalizations. They're, they're, they're process words. They're things that are talking about uh, feeling processes, and they really can't be defined so easily, if, if at all. Um, and so in each and every case, when you talk to someone about love, you have to find out what they mean in that specific context, and that may even change five minutes later. So it isn't really very precise. And so there are a lot of sub- presuppositions that are necessary in order to even talk about it. So whenever we talk about love, it's um, probably going to be a poetic um, and inspired conversation involving a lot of trance, a lot of trance states. So I recognize that. And in those trance states, um, your imagination can create all sorts of um, sparkles or darkness, depending on, on the moment and the frame. And to unpack the idea about the universe, we don't actually know how we were created. We only know that we have uh, reverse engineered our way through astrophysics and so forth to theorize how things began. But, I mean, you used a word which is perfectly adequate. You said from nothing, nothingness, right? Um, What is nothingness? Was it potentiality? Was that nothingness containing all possibilities? You know, we don't really know. It's philosophy is what I'm saying. And I'm a philosophical person. I'm I'm a deeply philosophical soul. There's no question in that. I'm just stepping outside of myself and back in myself and stepping out of myself and stepping back in myself to understand what we're talking about. I don't claim to know it. I just am making an effort through this discussion, this open-ended discussion, to try to understand how I feel about it and, and what my experience of it is by this dialectic, by understanding your point of view, Arden, and by understanding your point of view, Satch. Um, Satch uh, knows that him and I have talked about love so much because him and I are very loving people and you know we love each other deeply, his brothers. So like we share things at a really vulnerable level. I mean, the things that wound us, the things that inspire us. And I feel like this show is about that. You know, this is an extension of that. You're invited into this triangle, I guess you could say, of, of exploration. So it used to be that soulmate to me just meant the person you were meant to be with according to fate, destiny, God, whatever you want to say, that this was the person who you'd been waiting for all your life, that um, they could participate in their own growth and your growth and the growth of your relationship in a way that was, let's say, mostly positive, you know, that, that was beneficial, that yes, you might have little hitches along the way that need to be worked out, but there was a faith, this was a secure attachment, to use the term you used earlier, um, that you both grow from and that creates a foundation for you to be, to have a certain level of freedom, because there's no such thing as total freedom, Um, but a certain level of freedom, um, just as you can live out your will, the the sort of deep genius that exists within your... um, your consciousness, that deep genius, which is uh, somewhat formless until it forms and is continually arising out of that formlessness, much in the way that we talked about the universe forming out of nothing, but really it's potentiality. I sense that, that that is what's happening. And for me, twin flame became a differentiation from soulmate only because people said so. But 
to me, it's just another way of saying the same thing that, that, um, I could refer to a soulmate just like I could refer to a friend, but then there's, you know, for me personally, when I define a best friend, there's just, there's gradations of meaning depending on the context. Um, if at that moment I cannot conceive of any deeper love, any grander love, except uh, leaning into the unknown, then that person is my is everything that is my focus. It is it is my um, single point of loving that represents for me what I would call a soulmate or a twin soul or the person I'm meant to be with or whatever it is. If that changes, I'm not going to fault myself or that other person for that if it was sincere, if it was genuine, if it just happened to be that things, our, our paths moved apart or we entered into blocks that, were not, that, that we weren't able to resolve together. Uh, at that point, we make a kind choice, a loving choice to love ourselves and to love the other person and respect what we had and to end it lovingly. That's so fucking rare that you could end it lovingly, even though um, it's a great intention. I, I want this but I find it doesn't happen very often. So I hope with all of my being that I can continue to experience love at the highest and grandest levels, um, at the deepest levels. It's important to me. I spend time and energy um, leaning in and applying myself to having that and to digging deep within myself to love more. And at the same time, because of what I do in my education, I also look at all the codependent shit and all of the expectations and all the things that can get in the way of loving unconditionally. I don't even know if it's possible to be well, a human fair, being and to love unconditionally. I don't even know. I just know it's a great thing to aim for. It's a good, yeah. it's, it's a healthy, I feel, an inspiring thing to continue to aspire towards because it brings out your noblest qualities. And when you yeah. occasionally, or I occasionally um, get into an overwhelm of whether it be stress or trauma or stuff, um, we're not operating at that highest level. So it helps to have something to shoot for. It helps to have the rules on the wall kind of thing to look at, like to go, oh yeah, take a deep breath. It's okay. You know, This is where I'm aiming. Just keep reapplying. And that to me is as close to perfection as you can get because there's no such thing as perfection. But as close as you can get is to go, those are my ideals. They're chosen wisely. And I really want that. And I'm willing to spend my energy getting it. That's how I feel about love and soulmates and twin souls and all that stuff. I want it deeply and I don't understand it. Understanding of, of unconditional love is um, is that it, it's essentially rooted in, in non-attachment, right? What it means for for me is that I don't want anything that I have to force or that I have to convince. You know, my last breakup with um, with the man from Italy who who showed up on on the night of the eclipse. You know, we were in this harmony for for a while and. Um, and then we reached a point, you know, where, where we were both growing and we reached a point where he said, hold up. Um, you know, I got, I got 
stuff I got to take care of. I got to get my, my money situation in order. I got to get, you know, I got to make a leap in my career. I got to figure out, you know, some things for myself. And, uh, and so he wasn't ready to grow with me toward, you know, toward closing that gap. And, you know, naturally there's grief around that, but my understanding, my understanding of unconditional love, and especially as I understand it in the formula is like, I am willing to let him go and do that and to understand, you know, I might not agree with his decision that he wants to do that work without a partner. Right. I might, I might think, you know, well, I think you'd be better off if you did that while staying in relationship with me, because we can be supportive of one another. It doesn't matter. That's just my personal opinion. Right. Unconditional love comes in as I say, okay, I'm, and, and it's also unconditional love for myself because what, what I'm saying is, I'm going to let you go and I'm going to let you do the thing that you need to do because I don't want to have to convince you to be with me because the minute I fall into that energy of convincing then I'm trying to force something that doesn't want to naturally happen and I love myself enough to say I'm going to keep growing I'm going to keep going on this journey and I'm going to keep closing that gap toward that zero point and I'm going to trust that the person who then mirrors those polarity who is then you know, the result of that algorithm of the, based on a mirror image of where I'm at is going to show up for me. And that I don't ever put the onus on any one human person to be the form in which my sacred partner shows up in, you know, that I could be deep in a relationship with someone and we could be, you know, we could be right here the whole time. But then the idea is that time allows for change, right? We can change, like that's the idea of us each being individual creators. That yes, we can step into this relationship and we can be on track in that relationship that can guide us forward through time with this structure and this framework that allows us to continue mirroring one another. But if someone falls away from that too much because either other things are going on in their life or just they make their own human free will choice to not continue aligning because we all have free will, Unconditional love to me is, is just like not forcing alignment when alignment is not happening and trusting that that by me taking self-responsibility and having my own my own ducks in order, you know, that that, that other person who is gonna be in alignment is is gonna show up and not to have to hang on to, to someone. So and the, the mistake I think people make, like you brought up, you said, you know, sometimes things end, you know, and, and can you not beat yourself up for like, oh, I thought this was my soulmate, but they're not, it's no, it's, it's, we always attract from right where we're at. Right. So it's about quantum time. It's about the fact that at one point in time, we can attract a certain person and that certain person can also attract us because we're in can't, like we're in, we're in that, um, we fit the equation, right. We're mirroring one another we're at that same place of growth. But that due to free will, we can fall out of that equation. We can fall out of that balance by either of us making, you know, the choices that we make in our, in our lives. And that when that happens, we don't look back at that and say, oh, that wasn't my soulmate. She clearly wasn't the one like, you know, it's no, that was what I was mirroring at that time. So that was perfect. But time makes changes in us. So who I am now is not the same as who I was three years ago. So who I'm going to attract is going to be different too, you know? And our hope is that we attract that person that we then settle into that, that, that track, right? That, that structure of relationship that helps us to, that we build together and we grow and we move forward and we continue that, that mirroring of one another. And we continue to, to, to be in that and to feed that and support and nurture that growth. But that understanding that if it falls apart, it's just because now is a different time than then was, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Yeah. That's how I do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love it. And um, what you're saying about unconditional love, I, I concur. Um, it's more of like, I think I went meta in my description uh, a bit, um, looking at it from a standpoint of um, ultimately what words mean. But I recognize that within the personal perspective of human to human relating, um, there is such a thing, of course, as um, really feeling like you have no agenda or that you don't want to force your will upon someone else, that, that you can allow them to exit even though you would prefer they didn't. I think there are gradations of desire because because non-attachment is a, is a buzzword that can be, I think, um, overused or misused quite a lot because there's no such thing as true non-attachment unless you have no desires at all because attachments are related to desires. You know, when you desire something, there's an attachment to having it at some level. It just may not be as sticky of an attachment. It may not be as a heavy or entangled form of attachment, but it's still an attachment, you know, until you go, oh, you know what? I realize I'm holding on emotionally to having that. If you were non-attached, you would just literally let people walk in your door and take whatever they want and do whatever they wanted to you. There's no such thing unless you're absolutely fucking nuts, like you're, you've lost sanity. But there is such a thing as having flexibility and adjusting and recognizing contextual um, applications of things like that. Like, yeah, um, it's great to then reflect and go, wow, you know what? I am attached to this person. And I also need to be very aware that if they choose not to be with me, that's their choice and I'm going to need to step back. But do the, does that mean then later on I'm not allowed or supposed to, quote unquote, feel like crying my eyes out when it ends or that I'm supposed to feel like um, totally at peace with the fact that they've moved on? <laughs> no, like that's not human. There's yeah, an animal yeah. portion of us that is bonding that becomes attached. It's just how entangled are you? Like there's a form of entanglement that is, I feel, natural. And a form of entanglement that, that is the result of um, deeply abused patterns from being abused and not really learning how to develop um, higher emotions and flexibility and resilience. That can interfere because of childhood trauma and all sorts of things in our lives, learnings, so to speak. Um, and you can evolve to become a person who can do both, I feel where you can, on the one hand, be uh, very, very committed into something and not like, hey, I got one foot out the door because, you know, I'm, I'm unattached. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not the same thing as investing fully in something. It's almost like I put it this way a few times in my life. It's a fun game in a way to transform things into games, right? Um, that's what I do to help me with difficulty. Nice. And I feel yeah. like, how present can I be? Like, can I be more present than the last time? Or if I were to look at this other person in the relationship, are they capable of being as present with me in this as I am? Typically, I don't find that to be the case, but I've always been seeking that, you know, person who can be. Because incredible magic happens the more present you are together. There's such a polarity. There's such energy. If you want to talk magic, holy shit. So much oh, yeah. <laughs> so much magic happens when two loving souls who are um, more awake than most people come together, literally and figuratively, and end up 
expanding consciousness in that presence, that is fucking potent. So yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Gosh, Carlos, <laughs> um, I, I was listening deeply to what you were saying and, and, you know, you, you and I have known each other for so long, you know, that sometimes I think I can hear things in what you're saying and you can hear <laughs> things in what I'm saying that maybe the other average person might not, you know, yeah. um, a couple of things come to mind, um, about what you were sharing there. Um, one thing is that um, humans are still evolving, right? We're, 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 uh, the three of us are not uh, the endpoint of where humanity is going. So it's perfectly okay to expect more out of love and relationships and connection, right? Because we're, we're manifesting evolution of our species, right? So brother, man, you keep doing it. <laughs> keep, keep expecting it. You know what I mean? It's great. It's, it's awesome. You know, um, keep, keep, um, you know, pushing and, and, and causing love to cause us to evolve. Right. I think that's, that's something that, that I wanted to say. Um, the other thing, uh, is that sometimes I think we need to reassign, um, our meanings to what we put on things like heartbreak, you know, or loss, um, uh, uh, you and I are both aware of the, of the heartbreaks and losses that we've experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are what they are and they, they, they hurt, you know, um, uh, at the same time we can reassign meaning to that, you know, like, uh, you know, I remember one day I, I always find myself gaining insights when I'm stuck in a situation. Like when I was stuck at the DMV, <laughs> I was once stuck on campus during an accreditation visit in a room and there, I couldn't go anywhere. So what did I do while everybody else was working? I decided to read roomy poetry. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's my style. It's how I roll. And, uh, you know, something, you know, I, I, I read just what I needed, which was, um, when you're in pain over something, and I'm I'm paraphrasing because right right right, Rumi didn't didn't write his stuff in English anyway. Okay, so I'm, it's okay to paraphrase Rumi. Um, he said, if you look deeply at what it is that's causing you um, pain, you realize that it's because that's the thing that gave you the most joy. Mm. And <clears throat> and that's what I mean about reassigning the meaning to these things. Two beings come together. There's love, attachment, bonding, and that's good bonding. And then those two beings come apart. Maybe one of those beings wants to come apart more than the other, right? Or maybe they repel each other all of a sudden, right? Um, you know, uh, we, can, we, we can think carefully about the meaning behind that. Like um, our mutual friend, James Key, who was a guest on our show, Arden, by the way. Um, nice. He shared a story once, and it wasn't on his episode. It was some other time where he said that, remember, Carlos, he shared that story with a, a friend. He was friends with a couple, and the couple was going to be leaving the country and traveling all around the world. And, and he was starting to withdraw from the friendship because he was anticipating the pain of their separation. Right. And his friend reminded him, he said, hey, look, he said, let's build towards bigger pain. If we do, like, basically, if we do this right, let's dive in even more. It should hurt when we say goodbye. So we could put more, we, we could change the meaning about that. You know, it's okay for it. It should, it should fucking hurt. Right. If you, <laughs> if you did it right, you yeah. know, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's just so another good. way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, baby. Make it hurt so good. Sometimes love don't feel like it should <laughs> right? hurt so good. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of what I felt like sharing about that. 
Ram Dass once said, you know, Richard Alpert, Ram Dass, um, I, I just love the guy. Um, but he, he said, if you're feeling, if you're still feeling attachment or aversion, then there's work to do. Mm, mm-hmm. But that doesn't imply, like that statement doesn't stand all by itself without any context. I mean, he, he lectured on and on about things and uh, quite clever things that he put, and they were always within a certain context. So when you take a meme like that and just kind of put it up on a, and post it on Facebook or whatever it is you do, um, it forgets all the context. So yes, mm-hmm. there's work to do, but what kind of work, you know, and what does work mean? So uh, and what is attachment and what is aversion? So you, we know from, from Buddhism and, and from meditation what that means for us. Um, just because you're doing work on something doesn't mean it's bad or something to be avoided. That's an aversion. Avoiding aversion is still an mm-hmm. aversion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, so well, it's it, being attached to being comfortable, right? <laughs> and like, I, I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea um, that anything that matters to me is going to have a mix of positive and negative feelings attached to it. And I'm okay with that. Like a relationship, even just if, if everything was going so beautifully between me and another human being that I'm sharing love with, there's probably going to be moments when I think, Oh my God, what if this ends? Or what if they don't come back they go and get in a car accident? Or what happens if one of us gets sick or what happens if, 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 right. That's not, using the imagination in a positive way. It's abusing the imagination because I'm doing it, but it's human to do that, mm-hmm. to fear loss. So I guess I'm, I understand that, that there, there's always work to be done. I don't look at it as like some kind of sannyasi in orange robes and say, oh, well, I'm not going to be attached to things. You know, I'm going to, no way. Mm-hmm. I'm here to experience the world, to live fully. And I want to die fully as well. I want to be as present as I can when I die. Um, and I don't want to be detached from the world in, in, except to say that I'm uh, more and more detached from the old patterns which were holding me down. And in that way, I want to practice unattachment. Um, the things that are entangling me from expressing my fullest, highest ideals, then definitely I want to disentangle myself from those things for sure. But I like that I care about the world. I like that I care about other human beings and myself. I like that I love loving. I like that I love being in love, that that's important to me. And I don't think I'll ever change that, but um, I have no interest in changing that. But I am interested in continuing to grow and be healthier. I am interested in creating more and more security and attachment forms that are mutually beneficial, um, as I have with my best friends. I mean, Satch and I know, I mean, we have a a tight group of of, uh, brothers uh, and sisters now, too. Um, But some of these friends we've known for decades. You know, one of them I've known for 40 years, more than 40 years. So um, I know what it means to have secure attachments. I know what that means. And I just got to figure out how to apply that towards romantic love. <laughs> yeah. Somehow. My understanding of, of non-attachment, or at least I should say my personal practice of it, is that I am certainly allowed to want things. I'm allowed to desire things, yeah. you know. But attachment to me is being attached to it showing up in a specific form or a specific person, you know, or on a specific timeline or, or, or whatever, especially when it involves the free will of other people. Right. So non-attachment to me, um, reconciling non-attachment with reconciling my desire to live fully basically says whatever the thing is that I want, 
it is my responsibility to create it for myself within Mm -hmm. and then trust that I will attract the right thing showing up for me, whether that's a relationship or like, I went through this with my music as well. I went through this with my, my music production being attached to, um, to a certain producer, you know, for a while that I really thought like, this is the one I jive with. This is like, this is what's supposed to happen, you know? And, um, and that person ended up like ghosting me and then leaving for a tour for three months, you know? And it was, it was like, you know, and finding a new producer is like, like finding a new therapist, you know, like it's, it's, it's just, it's so personal, you know, especially when it comes to your art and non-attachment for me is saying like, yeah, I want to put my album out, you know, like I have the desire to create, right. But I'm not going to rely on any one person or any one circumstance to have to show up for me in their free will in order for me to create the thing that I want to create. And I also understand, like you said, like there is naturally, there's going to be human attachment. There's going to be pair bonding, right? There's going to be on like, I mean, I mean, even just fluid bonding with a person, like there, there are entanglements that happen, but I can recognize these things as things that are happening in my animal body Mm -hmm. and not things that are a reflection of me in my spirit. So when my breakup with my last partner happened, you know, obviously I was grieving, you know, it it was, it was for me, one of the most, one of the deepest and most profound love experiences that I'd ever experienced in my life. You know, it it was, it was so uh, at that point, there was so much emotional intimacy and there was so much soul level growth, um, between us. It was remarkable. Um, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And, and yet when the breakup happened, it was even easier for me to let that go than it was for me to let go of, of the toxic things that I experienced in my past when I was still in codependence, precisely because I was still in codependence, right? So, so even though this was the most profound and most intimate love I had experienced up until this point, I could still say, I can let you go because I know where I'm at and I know what I'm attracting. And if the fact that I am growing at a rate that, that you're suddenly like, he, I mean, he, I'm, I'm not saying this to, to, to denigrate him in, in any way. Literally when we broke up, he said, I'm not mature enough for this relationship. Like maybe, maybe in time I'll be able to step up, but I don't want to keep you, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to keep you hanging on if like, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, I, I still have to figure out the things that I feel about love at that level, et cetera, et cetera. So letting him go was, on a spiritual level, it was quite easy because once it was obvious, it was just like, once I knew that I was falling into that energy of convincing, then I was just like, oh no, I don't want to be convincing. So, okay. So, so go, if that's what you want, I don't, I don't want to hold you onto that, you know? And then of course I saw my facilitators, you know, I saw like my, my alchemist, you know, an energy healer. And I was like, I was like, all right, guys, you know, like pull up team. Like I got some grief to process, you know, because my animal body is going to have those attachments exactly as you said, but my knowing, my knowingness is on a different level where I, where I know that once I process through this grief and I remove those, those attachments, to the timeline that I had. And then of course, immediately, as soon as we broke up the pandemic hit, you know, and he's in Italy. So I was like, oh, I was like, the universe actually was looking out for me. Could you imagine if I was trying to make that work when my U.S. passport won't, oh. isn't even going to be valid to go to it, you know? Mm. So now it's like, I look back at that. I'm like, oh, wow, that happened for a reason. Mm. And actually in a, in a weird way, that breakup was, was, I went through that grieving process right at the right time. Like that was actually working out in my favor in some strange way. And he and I haven't, haven't really kept in touch a lot, but I don't feel like there's, 
there's, you know, there's space, but I don't feel like there isn't room for him to come back. If he all of a sudden quantum leaps, you know, <laughs> quantum leaps, quote unquote, but you know, if he comes back and says, Oh, I did that work and I'm, and I'm ready now, then the question is just, does, does the equation fit? It's not even personal anymore. It's yeah. like, is this in alignment? You know, I can love you and I can experience unconditional love for you. And my unconditional love for myself says this needs to be in alignment for it to work. So my practice of non-attachment is that I prioritize alignment over anything else. I prioritize true alignment and things working and being in that flow over, you know, over any attachment to something that's not working, you know, just because I think in my head that it should work a different way. So, so of course I feel a desire for my sacred union, right? I mean, I'm working through a whole album, like hyper sigilizing that coming into my life. And mm-hmm. I'm terrified that I'm going to finish the album and then still be single. And like, but, but this is what it means to have a leap of faith, right? This is what it means to, to practice magic, right? I'm, I'm putting, I, the universe has shown me so much so far and has brought so much to me that, that I believe in it. I just believe that committing to this path is going to, is going to create that for me. So mm-hmm. So it's my commitment to myself and to me staying in my own energy and not being pulled out of my own path in, because I'm attached to an external circumstance or an external person that requires their free will showing up for me in, in a way that they're just not doing of their own accord, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want that relationship and I want that alignment more than I want any one specific person because right. I know that the person who fits into that alignment mathematically is going to be the best person because that's how it works. Right. We have this idea that people are like, Oh, but if I'm not attached to this person, this person is the best person. So therefore anything else is settling. And it's like, no, 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 no. You have to break free of that paradigm that, that it's this or it's, or I'm settling for the person who, who is into me, but I'm not that into them. No, 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 no. You have to imagine something that is even better, where that mutuality, you know, that that infinity symbol, that that loop, right? <laughs> where where it's that mutual, it's that thing. And that mutuality is going to be better than anything that is not that mutuality. And so that's that's my idea around that. Well said. Very well said. <laughs> All of that from the very beginning. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. Bravo. That's, yeah, we're, you and I were talking about an element of what she just said uh, last night. We were on a run and you asked me to elucidate on it. I said something about if I'm in love uh, with a person and um, I'm having troubles around it, you know, it's, it's uh, not connecting fully or something like that. I want to be able to be in a place where I can continue being in that space of loving and deeply committed to that love without um, needing the other person to agree on it and to be sort of like dependent on extrinsic uh, forces in order to feel empowered around it. Because empowerment doesn't have to do with extrinsic things so much as it has to do with um, aligning yourself to be responsible for the way you're directing your own life and being self-authoring, that that kind of thing. So I want a love that aligns. That's a good way of putting it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very good way of putting it. I, gosh, mm-hmm. this is a great conversation, guys. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a great song that kind of hit me recently. It's uh, Love the One You're With. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes the one you're with is just you. So just love that person, you know, and then when you're with somebody else, the love that person that you're with, you know, because the, if the love itself is real, 
you know, then that's good enough. Just it'll take care of what, what needs to be taken care of, you know? So love the one you're with, you know? I love you too right now. Oh, <laughs> hey. yeah. yeah. I love you both back. <laughs> yeah. and, and my dog who's sitting here on the, on the couch. So yeah. we love you, Percy. <laughs> she, she I, I have headphones on so or else she'd, she'd be her nose would be right up here looking at uncle carlos yeah Aww. i just got to snuggle her yesterday mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very good well this is a i think a just personally speaking a beautiful place to um to close for now mm-hmm. um unless there yeah, are we any, covered a lot of ground this is wonderful we did, we did. yeah we did a truly did. authentic real conversation we appreciate you for um mm-hmm. you know for opening up and having a real conversation with us. I mean, we can tell that, that, you know, uh, when we're in the presence of somebody who, who actually allows some vulnerability and, and, and speaks her truth. Um, so this is the kind of thing we, we love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're probably going to have a nice big party when we have our hundreth episode. So I think, yes. I think you're invited, Arden. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You're invited. invited. That'd be great. And you won't even have to fly in unless you're happy to yeah. be doing something somewhere else. But, but yeah, we would love to have you. Um, uh, so um, how do people find you for one? What's the easiest way to find you and, and where are you um, to be found? Mm, that is a great question. Um, I am most active on my Facebook. If you just want to learn about my course and, and get some information, you can go to therepatterningproject.com. And that also has all of my social media on it. Uh, my band is Arden and the Wolves. We're on Spotify, Apple Music, you know, anywhere where you can get music, basically. And um, and then both my Twitter and my Instagram are It's Me Arden Lee. So I-T-S-M-E-A-R-D-E-N-L-E-I-G-H. And, uh, and yeah, and I'm most, uh, I am most active on Facebook. Um, so facebook.com, um, slash the repatterning project or slash Arden and the wolves are my business pages, but you can also look me up just Arden Lee, A-R-D-E-N-L-E-I-G-H and, uh, and shoot me a friend request and, uh, you know, message me and say hi. Great having you on the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Arden Lee. My name is Oliver Alti, and I produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media. Like us, follow us, all the things. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thank you for listening, and have an authentic day. Thank you.